Welcome to Scandal.K12.us. Our Scandal K12 curriculum is a true crime comedy podcast about bamboozling boards, sneaky superintendents, lame learning products, and teachers who are way too cool for school. Listener discretion is always advised. Now sharpen those pencils since today you're going to want to take a lot of notes. Everything in life is on a standardized test and the answer is always 42. And now, time for morning announcements. Good morning, Scandal K-12 students, home of the Fighting Rats. Go Rats! Let's stand for the state anthem. Oh boy, enough of that. Thanks, Scandal K-12 Glee Club. You really outdid yourselves there. See you at yard time. Today's Power Breakfast is sponsored by the great state of Massachusetts, home of the largest collection of haunted houses. Literally, there is a coffin house and a witch's house. It is also home to the Massachusetts Turnpike, or the Mass Pike, perhaps the longest continuous construction project since the pyramids, with summer stop and go from Athol to Peabody. Before we get to our main topic, we want to recognize a few teachers in our morning announcements who are contributing to our Scandal curriculum. Shout out to Alfred Purcell a 57-year-old biology teacher at the school of Southbridge High School in southeastern Massachusetts. Alfred, it seems, was captured by school surveillance cameras, allegedly planting a few rounds of 9mm ammunition in the hallway of the school and then later discovering it. Apparently, he wanted to get metal detectors installed at the school to prevent just such an incident. And what better way to turn your school into the prison-like environment it was meant to be than smuggling in contraband? However, unlike real prison... The ammo was in his pocket and not boofed up Alfred's, um, fanny pack. We also want to recognize Dorothy Bancroft Varaka. Varaka, 42, a now former teacher at Neshoba Regional High School in Bolton, Dorothy was charged with exchanging nude photos with a high school student. The cheeky snaps were discovered when the boy came forward with nude photos of the teacher. Because if there's one thing that a 15-year-old boy can keep as a secret, it's pics of a naked lady. This proves that teachers over 40 really need to become tech-savvy since they obviously don't know about Snapchat or Wicker, Slingshot, Yovo, ClipChat, Cyberdust, or any other platform where your saucy sausage or tantalizing taco pics vanish into the ether of the cybercloud, or at least are stored on Russian servers in the event you run for public office. Hopefully the boy was not scandalized and stays in school. If he starts cutting class and skipping school, he may be labeled disengaged or even at risk. If the school can't come up with a person's in need of supervision plan or pins in order to set him on the right path, they may have to refer him to an old-fashioned reform school where students learn to respect authority, improve discipline, and develop an old-fashioned love of bondage. One such reform school is the subject of today's chapter we're calling scandal.k12.us forward slash reform school. About 80 miles from Athol, that's Massachusetts Athol, not New York's Athol, is the quaint village of Stockbridge. As with most of the Berkshires of Massachusetts, Stockbridge is full of history and constantly smells of pumpkin spice all year. You will thereupon find quaint farm lanes, grand mansions, and as one local claims, a nest of filthy cults. 
One such alleged filthy cult was a DeSisto school, a therapeutic boarding school situated in an old, easy-to-miss Edwardian mansion on vast grounds and right next to the not-at-all cult Kripalu Yoga Center, where on Thursdays David will teach you mindfulness based on harmonica to find your harmonica mantra. The DeSisto school was also close to the definitely a cult, Enlightened Next, where Andrew Cohen specialized in gently vanquishing your ego and setting you free using nothing but fear and humiliation. So perhaps the neighborhood is indeed quaint farms and filthy cults. So to understand the DeSisto school, one must get to know the founder, Michael DeSisto, the man, the hero, the person who, it seems deep down, may have drank his own Kool-Aid, or at least taken a few enemas with it. To do this, we'll go back. Michael DeSisto was born in 1938 in Boston to a working-class family, and his father died when he was young, about 11 years old. The death of his father would come up in his writings and also in his diatribes to the school as a very impactful event. Despite these personal problems, DeSisto had a relatively uneventful educational career, other than getting expelled from Cardinal O'Connell Seminary, an institution that would itself experience trouble in the 2000s during the Boston Archdiocese sex scandal. Other than his studies in theology, there's not much publicly available written about him until he moved to Long Island, New York in the 1970s. To understand the soup of educational ideas Michael DeSisto stood in, one has to consider Long Island of the late 1970s, the island of Jaws, the Amity Horror House, and Grey Gardens. Ricky Queso Jr., the acid king of Huntington, was still himself a kid, but things in suburbia were already tense and about to boil over. Families were stressed. The nation seemed to be falling apart. Long Island was going through painful transformations and long-standing institutions were becoming unrecognizable to locals. The bucolic landscape of blue-blood mansions, potato fields, and quaint fishing villages populated by ducks was being transformed into an unending carpet of suburbia. One such institution that teetered on the edge of an identity crisis was the Lake Grove School. Up to the 1960s, the Lake Grove School was a grouping of stately, if not somewhat austere, limestone buildings surrounded by fields, uh, apparently a lake, and I guess a grove of some sort. The school catered to New York City's elite. Artists, writers, industrialists. They'd all send their offspring for elucidation and get them into that fresh Long Island air. Well, the air quality and the times were changing by the 1960s. The wealthy were pushing farther and further out to the Hamptons and poor Lake Grove, once a whistle stop on the LIRR, was now Exit 61 on the LIE, home to a huge indoor shopping area called the Smith Haven Mall and a mere center's reach from New York City. All the teeming, striving, middle-class masses, fleeing and yearning to be free from the burning city, the looting, and perhaps their own racism, fast-pushed the upper middle classes from that part of the island out. Suburbs were quickly transforming gentle country lanes into endless traffic jams. This left the Lake Grove School with dwindling enrollment of fancy Chaunceys and Lucindas. The founder, Mr. Brayson, he wanted to pass this school on to his descendants and continue the sacred responsibility of educating and protecting future generations. But he also needed to do what tech bros call pivot to a new model, and pivot he did.
Concurrently with the general meltdown of society in the United States, large-scale institutions were being questioned. The large-scale insane asylums, hospitals, orphanages, and institutions for children that acted as a hospital, asylum, orphanage were all doing it equally poorly. Many institutions served thousands of troubled, mentally ill, or children with cognitive disabilities and maintained them out of sight and in horrible conditions. Some of these institutions were called out for their total disregard of their charges. While the criticism of these institutions had been growing for some time, in 1972, Geraldo Rivera, then an investigative reporter for WABC-TV, and not the total wad he'd grow up to be, exposed the Willowbrook State School for deplorable conditions including overcrowding, inadequate sanitary facilities, and physical and sexual abuse by residents by members of the school staff. It was a confusing time for parents. Who knew what to believe? The old institutions were corrupt warehouses of sadness. The old psychoanalytical methods seemed very shaky, especially after the Rosenhan experiment, a.k.a. the Thud experiment, demonstrated that psychiatric professionals may be passing out prescriptions and placing loved ones in old, filthy fortresses guided only by perception and not the cold hand of rational science. The world seemed to need new ideas and institutions. New institutions to care for the vulnerable, ways to guide little Johnny and Sally away from those drugs and all that free love and get them to stay in the suburbs for good. It was a great time for snake oil men and women and a terrible time to be a child with special needs. Albert Aloysius Brayson I obtained a permit from the village and transformed the old Fru-Fru Lake Grove School in the mid-1960s to offer solutions that the parents of today needed. The school switched from those old blue bloods to serving students with cognitive disabilities and expanded quickly to become a boarding school for emotionally disturbed teens, a catch-all phrase for kids who were exhibiting anything from borderline drapetomania to full-blown neurothena, kids who may have tuned in, turned on, and dropped out much of the horror of their parents or a local court system overwhelmed by petty criminals. The Lake Grove School would save the children. With the Olympic swimming pool filled in for safety, cheap suburban-like structures tossed up for additional space, the school set about hiring new staff to create a therapeutic environment to meet the needs of today's children. And this meant hiring new teachers, minders, security details, and lunch ladies who could handle not just working with teens, but working with really, really difficult teens. In early 1967, a then 28-year-old Michael DeSisto walked through the door of the Lake Grove School and was hired to both teach and provide therapy, which for a private school in New York State at the time neither required a license nor any credentials. Now, for most people, teaching is not a problem without a license, but Michael hadn't had any formal training in therapy either. But he seemed more than interested to give it a try with his young and impressionable charges. He was drawn particularly to gestalt therapy. It's sort of an add-on power pack for psychotherapy popularized in the 1951 book titled, as you might expect, Gestalt Therapy. It was developed by a mishmash of PhDs and MDs who expanded psychotherapeutic self-help exercises and generally gave enough hokum and bunk to last generations. Anywhere you hear things like, The greatest enemy to human potential is your comfort zone, it is. Or anything you can attach in bed to. I can't promise to fix all your problems, but you won't have to face them alone. In bed. Whenever you hear that, you're basically hearing Gestalt. Gestalt therapy and its derivatives spawned different technologies as diverse as the 
Earhart Seminar's training, formerly the foundation for the realization of man, which sounds like the most predictable and boring stag film, and landmark education, now landmark worldwide. Live the life you love. Redefine the very nature of what's possible. In bed. All the various New Age, large group awareness training programs are basically spawned from a very similar font, if not the Gestalt therapy book. They also wanted one thing, adherents who could afford to pay big money for what most people get for free, reading the walls of public toilets. While many people were using Gestalt therapy to release themselves from their problems, the children sent to Lake Grove School didn't have much choice in their salvation. They didn't have any control over that DeSisto never studied psychology formally other than a few seminars at the Gestalt Center for Psychotherapy and Training in New York, which is currently located between Garden Retreat Asian Massage and Pinky Threading Salon on 28th Street in New York, both of which may have been porno theaters in the 1970s when he studied there because, well, everything in New York City back then was a porno. In 1978, DeSisto had a disagreement with the board of directors over how children should be treated and what children's therapy should look like. He then resigned, like the three previous schools he had worked at, which had fired him. Now, to put this in perspective about a disagreement over how children should be treated and what it took to get fired from a school back then, 1978 was also the release date of the film Pretty Baby, which starred a then 12-year-old Brooke Shields. The UK rated the film X due to it being, as one reviewer put it, child pornography. But I mean, the entire decade was a wild time with a lot of experimentation by parents who didn't know how to protect their children. Brooke Shields shedding her clothes for the camera was already old news as she had posed nude at age 10. Don't Google check that fact from a public network. But trust us, it's true. We cannot specifically prepare for the miracles which are sure to come in 1980 or in 2010. But we can update our education and stay abreast of new technology and make learning a continuing process. Perhaps a stronger factor in the disagreement between DeSisto and the school's directors, who were paid board members in an age when nonprofit boards were supposed to be a volunteer position, may have been that after 11 years of doing, well, whatever he wanted with his student patients, the 40-year-old DeSisto now had to answer to a freshly minted Albert Aloysius Brayson, Albert Aloysius Brayson II, who in 1977 was promoted to executive director of the school at about age 24. One can imagine the strong personality of Mr. DeSisto not wanting to submit to such a junior and inexperienced executive director. Yes, Mr. Albert Aloysius Brayson II to you, Michael. You talk to me when I tell you to. When my father and I close down your pathetic musical theater club, my family will knock down your inappropriate classroom and build proper condos. Put down your little scholastic mitre. Whatever the root of his philosophical pedagogical disagreement... Michael asked the hang-in-there-kitten poster on his wall for advice and vowed to start out on his own. If persnickety little Albert Aloysius Brayson II could run a school, he could found his own. Anyone can dream big, especially if you live in constant delusion. Whatever the prima mobile, the initial spark, he was inspired to excel in education at any cost. DeSisto had learned all he needed from the Lake Grove School, an institution that itself would be closed after decades of complaints of abuse, rape, neglect, fraud, and various financial crimes by both the institution itself and the directors, including a four-year stint of overbilling the state of New York by almost $7 million that was never repaid. However, don't complain to the Lake Grove School 
After being shut down by the state of New York, the abandoned facility was burnt down for the third and final time in 2015, paving the way for new and ever more development in the community, such as condos. But that's another scandal for another venue. So in 1978, Michael DeSisto was striking out on his own in the right time when humanity's middle-class children needed him the most. Think about the opportunity. The United States was a mess. Runaway teens were selling their taints for filthy lucre on Times Square. There were other teens mad with reefer staring at blacklight posters. And what would one day be called classic rock was turning boys into devil worshippers as they followed the dead, listened to hell's bells, and trotted down the stairway to heaven. Kids, to understand those aforementioned musical references, listen to WPDH on 101.5, Poughkeepsie's greatest and only classic rock station. In 1978, Michael DeSisto had greatly benefited from the Grove School's curriculum. First, he stole a number of clients from the Lake Grove School. Well, he convinced them to leave. Second, he found the perfect location for corralling troubled youth in one place. And third, he founded his school. This school was going to charge her very healthy tuition, which in 1978 was the equivalent of $47,837.67 per year in today's money. Like the tottering school complex he worked at for 11 years, where one could be brained by a limestone cornice, his new school venture would be in a rotting mansion just outside of Stockbridge on 275 acres where the Errant Corbel may impale you at any time. Along with cheap land, the rural setting made sure that there were no tract homes, no malls, or railroads, or highways that led to a large anonymous city. You were just out there, under the stars. There was no distraction at all from self-help and the situation you found yourself in every day. The vast majority of behavior problems in the classroom involve minor breaches of discipline. These incidents frequently originate in the classroom situation itself and are within the control of the teacher. Disciplinary problems in the classroom are symptoms of underlying weaknesses in total learning situations. Since many of you may not have been to western Massachusetts, let me set the stage. Stockbridge is home of the Sedgwick Pie, a configuration of tombstones around the central cenotaph and Arlo Gunthrie's 1967 song, Alice's Restaurant Massacre, which was more about how ineffective rural trash service was at the time than it was the menu of the storied restaurant found within the town. It is a sleepy place, perfect for anyone who wanted to be close to Boston, New York, or Springfield, but also keep the show off-Broadway, so to speak. With the mansion obtained and a number of families to pay the tuition, the school was an instant success. DeSisto had a knack for communicating with parents or enrolling troubled students who could afford the steep tuition. But it was not all white upper-class families sending their wayward sheep there. About 20% of the students received scholarships, which usually came in the form of court orders remanding kids to the facility until adulthood, which was 18 or 21, whichever came first. By 1980, the facility grew, and while there is no proof that these experimental methods worked, that is, produced functioning adults, there is also no proof that it didn't work. Well, I think we might find out if there is or isn't proof after this break. DeSisto didn't need evaluators or auditors or other educators with fancy titles to tell him what to do. And even if they did, he probably wouldn't have taken their advice. He wasn't smart. He had the smart credentials needed to win friends and influence people in education. 
He boasted he taught at Elmira College, Adelphi University, studied at the Center for Contemporary Psychology, pursued a master's degree in psychology from the University of Massachusetts, and consulted to the Free University of Stony Brook. The only problem being that the Free University of Stony Brook is right next to the land of Maple Leaf, across from Candy Mountain, and all of the other achievements on his curriculum vitae were fabricated out of whole or almost whole cloth. Nevertheless, DeSisto grew his school in Massachusetts. He saw himself as a Wizard of Oz who helps youngsters achieve success by telling them they are what they already are. And other vague fortune cookie statements. It seems the Wizard of Oz was a piker compared to DeSisto. The wizard took off in a balloon once a kid and a scruffy dog from Kansas showed up in his city. He packed it in. He could have told them they are what they already are and saved us the flying monkey scene, the agonizing death of the Wicked Witch, and another round of Glenda's boring lectures. But DeSisto was a master. Whatever levers DeSisto was able to use to control the good people of Oz, he was able to convince them, parents, courts, and psychiatric and educational professionals, convince them all to allow him to take hundreds of kids with histories of drug abuse, drinking, violence, prostitution, and attempted suicide, among other problems, to be under his care. DeSisto knew he had the corner to a very particular market, well-off parents ready to pay him to fix their broken kids, school districts that wanted to unload troublemakers, and local courts who could no longer just toss kids into horrific hospitals or psychiatric institutions. Everyone, for the right price, could now toss them into the DeSisto school, one former staffer said. The typical DeSisto parent is wealthy, educated, has a position of respect in the community, and has a total terror of his kid which summed up the majority of cases under DeSisto's care. And care for the kids Michael really did. He claimed to have a magic touch when it came to troubled kids, especially the boys. There's a lot of personal interaction. There's a lot of love that goes on between us. We might even be a father figure, but they know we love them, and they know that we're the ones who make the rules. The limits and the caring are the two most important aspects. Also the fact that we're involved in it with them. We're all in therapy. We believe that therapy is something that we all could use, he said in a 1983 interview with Education Week. If this were VH1 behind the music, for Michael DeSisto, the 1980s and 1990s was a golden age. During this time, he was at the top of his game. Parents were signing up their kids for a school, and he was making media appearances and opening locations hoping to become international. Suck it, Lake Grove School Experience Corporation. Yes, that is what Albert Aloysius Brayson III eventually called his family business. DeSisto schools were taking in close to $8 million in income annually. They had almost $7 million in assets. And Michael had a house in the Keys. He had a villa in Mexico. And various apartments and getaways sprinkled between Boston and Biscayne. With all the new money DeSisto created in Stockbridge, he decided to spend it in Howie in the Hills, a small incorporated area in Florida between Astalusia and Okumpka, about 78 miles from Titusville. So next time I go visit you, Aunt Muggs, I may swing out to Howie in the Hills, where according to TripAdvisor user Laura J., the second best thing to do in 2020 is visit Belvin's Patriot Park when the Bogavilia are in bloom, because it is especially easy to pull into park to take a short walk before returning to your car and perhaps hitting up the Howie Market over on South Palm Avenue for some kettle chips. Things seemed to work at the Howie in the Hills school location for a time. They had the enrollment, 
They had the tuition. They kept their most seasoned and experienced staff in Florida. Many students from Howie and the Hills later reported they actually enjoyed their time at the school, despite the dumb name of the town. Some former students expressed online shock that there was such a negative campaign against the system and all he stood for with people raging about brainwashing, child abuse, sexual humiliation. People who had gone to these schools had escaped, talked about their experiences as if they'd been sent to a POW camp and had bamboo shoots slid under their fingernails. These former students swear they had experienced no such negative experiences, but had positive emotions towards the institution itself and credit DeSisto with intellectual and emotional growth. Other former DeSisto students post adamantly in various forums that they incurred many traumatizing experiences at the school. Memories I can't forget. I was not a bad teen, just misunderstood. My belief is that DeSisto brainwashed parents and definitely imposed cult-like practices. It seems the controversy was not to subside among students or anyone else for some time to come. Well, sadly, whatever the online opinions are, I won't be visiting Howie in the Hills DeSisto School anytime soon. While DeSisto was the largest landowner in Howie in the Hills, outside of the Mission Inn Golf and Tennis Resort, the school closed down in 1988 and it was sold for over $4 million due to a number of clusters. There was, of course, an alleged drop in enrollment. There were supposed staffing issues. I mean, no one wants to freeze their ass off in the Berkshires, so it's hard to keep good staff in both locations. Or perhaps the man who once showed up to teach a Latin class only in a bedsheet to have a toga party didn't want to admit something was wrong. It appears that DeSisto wanted to jumpstart his expansion a little prematurely and started moving students into housing not zoned for this. Rather than DeSisto sitting through boring meetings that lasted all day, something the dear leader was said to be famous for doing to his students and teachers, he wanted to cut to the end result, open a large school with hundreds more students. The town blocked his move, so he, on behalf of the students, got the best lawyer money could buy. But perhaps, however, he got the second best lawyer's money can buy since the suit was thrown out for being frivolous by the court and the town was actually awarded several hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. Zoning and town planning, while generally nonsensical or non-existent in Florida, is an interesting subject in the case. And if for all those paper chasers out there, you can look up DeSisto College Incorporated versus Town of Howie in the Hills, 1989. <laughs> While DeSisto had lost his property in Florida, he had gained a property and expanded in Mexico, situating himself within the high-scale Atascadero area of San Miguel de Allende. This institution has little online presence. According to insiders, DeSisto would take his most functional of the students, those who had earned a top spot in the top dorm or spun up in the parlance of the school, and he'd also take his most loyal teachers, the most experienced staff, and they'd flit off to Mexico for some social-emotional therapy in the sun, taking impressionable boys and girls with many social and emotional issues to countries where laws are a matter of opinion makes Joe Francis, media agent provocateur and creator of Girls Gone Wild, seems like he never pushed vulnerable youth in a foreign location far enough. Despite the media attention in the United States, the Mexico property never gained the same attention. Meanwhile, in 1983, the U.S. media was fawning over the achievements of this fix-your-teen guru. In the early 1980s, DeSisto was featured by Life magazine, Time magazine, and People magazine, and of course, the queen of all things totally legitimate, Sally Jesse Raphael. However, let's consider the media back then. At the same time in the early 1980s, Brooke Shields attempted to suppress the republication, yes, you heard me right, republication of her nude pics from when she was 10. 
Now 20, and while everyone had already seen every inch of her in Blue Lagoon, Penthouse wanted to publish her prepubescent images and, after a court case, they did. The case is archived in, appropriately enough, Shields versus Gross for you legal scholars out there. Thanks, stage moms. While the mainstream media gave accolades and tossed laurels on daytime TV, not every hard-nosed reporter was asleep at the helm. The Orlando Sentinel, a newspaper you work at when the Albany Times Union actually does a background check, did a three-part expose in 1988 that cracked the DeSisto facade that had been so not-so-carefully constructed. While the newspaper had to walk back that Michael was a total asshat, they stood by the allegations of money manipulation, false degrees, fictitious resume entries, and a number of other accusations that would sink the typical educator. However, Michael persisted in the face of persecution. In 1991, he published his first and only book, Decoding Your Teenager, How to Understand Each Other During the Turbulent Years, available on Amazon or wherever books are sold like Amazon, in Amazon, or Amazon. So the publication seems to be the high point, the place where, in the VH1 behind the music, the water broke, the waves rolled back, and the tulgy smell of all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll caught up with him and the institution so interwoven into his being as to be one and the same. What kind of behavior do you call this? Wait a minute, you stay where you are. This is the kind of behavior I might have expected of you. All I do is leave the room for a few minutes, and what do I find? Confusion, disorder. In 1993, a dorm parent was sentenced to five years in state prison for molesting several students, true not atypical for these sorts of institutions. However, shortly after that, nine more students were alleged to have been abused, and in 1996, one parent claimed that the school's tough love called street therapy, that is the practice of having parents refuse contact or support if a student ran away from the school facility and to force them to live on the streets, led to a student being raped and assaulted while on the road. Another popular story is about a student freezing to death in the woods outside of Stockbridge, but that may be a DeSisto legend passed about by students rather than based in fact since we can't find a news report that's verifiable on that. However, with the secretive behavior of the leader and the closed-door policy of the school in general, imaginations can run wild. By the 1990s, the world that was created and the by now $84,000 a year tuition was tumbling down. Students that bolted from the school were often chased down by staff and other students. One student claimed that he was thrown to the ground and beaten by both staff and students. He said as punishment, he'd be forced to face the wall for hours and hours and beg forgiveness. Since nothing was allowed to be locked on campus, not even cars, it was very physically easy for the students to leave in the middle of the night. The hard part was getting out of the rural Berkshires and not stumbling into the Kripalu Center or winding up being captured by a man called The Tracker who was believed never slept and was himself a former student. Even with the growing number of better documented complaints, people still sent their kids there to be fixed. Parents, psychiatrists, and courts fed the school additional students even though the attrition rate was growing and many of those supporters woven into the system from the early days were now retiring or dying in the 1990s. Still, those parents who were part of the school continued their support one parent claimed, As long as your son or daughter is doing well, you're willing to close your eyes to all the things going on behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, things were going terribly. Residence halls were falling into disrepair. The Olympic swimming pool was full of algae and about to collapse. And by Olympic, it was an above-ground pool with the brand Olympic. At night, the late-night meetings, the turn-ins, the limit structures, the hand-holding, the lockdowns, reading mail. Listening in to a parent-student phone call, paying for blowing F-bombs, strip searches, doing hours, being sent to the farm, spinning down from a dorm or spinning up, having possessions confiscated, earning off campus, were just not producing results. 
Staff fled in the middle of the night. Students fled in the middle of the night. Staff were hired who were untrained in basic care, let alone education or therapy. Students were given the wrong medication or not given the right dose since perhaps the nurse quit that night without any notice. The books in the library were yellowing. The classroom smelled of mold. The toilet in the female dorm barely worked and staff had to sleep in shifts in front of the doors to keep the students from escaping since, of course, locking anything was out of the question. When things unwind, they do so quickly. Anyone who believes change is gradual doesn't understand that the hang in there kitty poster is a live cat, dead cat example. The cat is either on the branch or not on the branch. In this case, the kitty was about to drop off the limb and hit hard. For all the accusations, allegations, and legal trouble over decades, it was musical theater that did in the DeSisto School. This is a complicated story involving violent Teddy of the film Reservoir Dogs, tap-dancing young checkers from the Broadway hit Bumbling Brown Sugar, and, as Variety put it in 2000, kids chronicling sexual abuse, addictions of all sorts, and multiple other reasons for their emotional difficulties, but through song. Apparently, just as the walls were closing in, DeSisto thought he'd sing and dance his way out. Collaborating with the school's music teacher, Lonnie McNeil, he and McNeil authored a musical production based on the writings of the students. The production would be used to raise money for the school and perhaps lead to more ventures of a similar sort. The pair brought in Michael Sottle, the musical talent behind either the man shooting a gun or getting shot by a gun in the film Reservoir Dogs. What better title for a production using the labor of children forced to be institutionalized at a school with a rule book and limit structures if printed out would be three feet high than inappropriate. And so was born, between the genius of DeSisto, McNeil, and Sottle, the off-off-off-off-Broadway musical Inappropriate, which, again, according to Variety, occasionally threatens to become incredibly powerful and then pulls back into generic. Not only did the way-too-creepy off-off-Broadway rock and roll musical fail to raise money, it led to a lawsuit between Sottle and DeSisto, and which, like previous court cases in that decade, DeSisto lost to the tune of over $300,000 in unpaid bills. If this were Gestalt, he would ask, is this behavior helping or hurting? In this case, the musical was hurting. Then suddenly... After almost three decades of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts sending students to this school, they decided to change their tune and they froze enrollment to the school, which added to the troubles of the institution. And as if legal or financial troubles weren't enough, the icy hand of death knelt over the body of Michael DeSisto as he was in the hospital in Boston and struck another blow to the man, the legend, and the institution since, like King Arthur... The king and the land are one, and failure of the body temporal led quickly to the failure of the body ethereal, the school. With the untimely demise of Michael DeSisto, the school quickly fell apart. In 2004, the sheriff got out of town. Literally, Paul Babu, the former Stockbridge sheriff and now former headmaster or something for the DeSisto school, depending on who you believe, lost his election bid due to several former DeSisto students coming forward with accusations that ruined his local campaign. They claimed he knew about abuses and transgressions against students, especially female students. Sheriff Babu alighted to Arizona in a cloud of controversy, which, according to the Internet, has followed him there. The remaining cooperating DeSisto school kids were bundled off to Mexico, where the then acting director of the school, Frank McNear, claimed that he would carry on the founder's wishes to love children one at a time, he said. This is nothing new. This is nothing we've never done before, McNear claimed. He also claimed that, like King Arthur, he would one day return the DeSisto school to the United States. However, over 
15 years later, there doesn't seem to be the trace of the institution in either Mexico or here in this great and storied land of ours. As McNear rode off to Mexico, and what we can imagine was a hot air balloon full of winged monkeys, as many levers as he could rip off the old Stockbridge campus, a handful of students and loyal parents, he called down to the good people of Oz, There's no government oversight of private schools in Mexico. For all we know, in some dimly lit hacienda, he and his students are there today. Well, they are what they already are. With the passing of time, the controversy amongst former students has raged on about their time at the school. Detractors continually are characterized as delusional, troubled kids by proponents, and those same proponents are condemned for the exact same delusions by the desisto detractors. That is the beauty of taking care of people who are marginalized, the perfect recipe about working with impressionable minds. We experience different things, see different actions, and have our own results, for good or for bad. With something so vague as what DeSisto offered, it was a perfect Rorschach test. With no outside voices helping guide or even evaluate the school, there was no disinterested or rational body to advise nor figure out whether these techniques really worked. There was only the perception of individual experiences, which is very, very gestalt. If you are a student at a DeSisto school, there is a survivor's network on Facebook. However, you will have to prove that you attended. So please, no tourists. While cultwatch.com is a valuable resource and we use it for this podcast, it is an ecumenical collaboration of various Christian churches. If you prefer, you can also use Common Sense Media, which is non-denominational, but funders include Zuckerberg and Bezos. So there's that. If you're a teen feeling stressed out, don't go on Reddit or Tick Snap June Chat Bot or whatever you kids do. Even if you need to talk to someone, you can call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline 1-800-273-TALK. That's 8255. If you're a parent dealing with troubled teens, don't read mommy blogs and certainly whatever you do, don't send your kids to a creepy haunted reform school. Please, mom, don't join a cult again. There are many resources out there, but the fact is that while I'd like to say things have improved, the stake oil men and women are still out there. There's no silver bullet. Start with the What Works Clearinghouse before you turn on Maury Povich. The What Works Clearinghouse reviews existing research on different programs, products, practices, and policies in education. You can find it at ies.ed.gov forward slash n-c-e-e forward slash w-w-c. While it's not perfect, it is a good place to start. And now, one last announcement. Hats off in Volusia County for deputies searching for a woman accused of stealing money from an elementary school's parent-teacher association. Amber Dickens was supposed to raise money for toys and games from the Wonderland gift shop, but managed to pocket the $1,892.20 for herself, and she took it on the land because $1,892.20 goes far in Volusia, but further in Daytona. Thanks, Amber, for your involvement in the school community. And remember, don't spend it all in one place. There are far too many sources to cite, so verified media links will be placed in our podcast page. The Orlando Sentinel is an award-winning news source for Florida full of professionals. Now found at www.sun-sentinel.com forward slash news forward slash Florida. We also use WNYC, which is, of course, WNYC.org. And shout out to, uh, not surprisingly, Wikipedia. Useful to a point even though many of the entries are written by trolls and several links on the pages are dead. 
If you have an educational scandal about something going on in your school or district that you think needs to be shared, send it to scandalk12us at gmail.com. We can't do a bake sale, so we have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash scandalk12us. We have school choice at the Scandal K-12 community. You can enroll at the public school level, where for $5 a month, you'll receive a shout-out to your home school or the school of your choice and early access to episodes. You can also join at the charter school, private school, or home school levels and receive benefits, some of which we're still building out. While we primarily rely on trusted, edited sources, we may also use the information found on citizen journalist websites such as blogs and forums. All parties are presumed innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. All opinions are the opinion of the opinionator, and facts are reviewed but not guaranteed because sometimes we just don't do our homework. Thanks to all the contributors on the Freesound Project at freesound.org. Credits will be listed on our website, www.scandalk12us.com. If you like what you hear, rate us highly on whatever platform you access podcasts on, whether it's Apple or Stitcher or Spotify or is there another one? Also, please recommend us to the friends you sit with at the lunch table or the popular kids you want to impress. I'm sure a few jocks need to hear this too. Remember the saying, tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Screw me over and you're on scandal.k12.us. All I do is leave the room for a few minutes, and what do I find? Confusion. Disorder.